I do apologise for my voice, it's a bit scratchy. Um, about 10 days ago I had the flu and, um, and then this week I've been lecturing at Cape and Ray and so I, I think I've, um, I've done some, uh, some damage there. But anyway, we're on the road to recovery. But um, sometimes I think it's probably just being a male. I've used up all my words in my vocabulary and, um, and I think my body's in rebellion. So, uh, but anyway, we're on the road to recovery and, um, and hopefully you can understand me with my scratchy voice this morning. Um, but, um, but yeah, just we've had a great time this week at Cape and Ray and we're here for another week as you've had Peter Thomas uh, come and serve you here as he's um, spoken to you and taught you over the last few weeks. He's over in India at the moment. He, Callum and, and his wife Liz uh, for the, um, the Asia Pacific Conference with Torchbearers and, and, uh, and so they're over there at the moment. So we can be praying for, for them and uh, for that conference. That would, um, that would be certainly a fulfilling time for them all as they discuss and they, they work through the, the matters but as well as that just an encouraging time as they meet together as Torchbearer family. Uh, so we're sort of filling in a, a, a gap there at Cape and Ray and, and doing some teaching and spending time with the students. So we've had a, a really good time and we're looking forward to the coming week. And we'll be back again on Sunday and uh, we'll uh, be able to, we pray, encourage you some more here this, uh, as well. So this morning, um, start with a word of prayer as we always should and need to because to understand this text, it's, uh, we need God's help. Um, it would be futile to do it on our own in your own understanding, your own intellect. So let's ask God um, now in this moment that he would guide us. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you because these words that we will read um, in the Bible, they're words of history, that um, they're your, it's, it's your story of the way you've worked with mankind. It's your story of the way you've redeemed and you've uh, rescued, restored and you've set free a broken and a, a fallen mankind, an absolute mess that we've made. And we look to you, Lord God, as one that has done it all for us. And we just thank you that we have the opportunity to read the text, the Bible. We have an opportunity to read the written word so we would know the living word. And it's, we come this moment because we need your help and uh, we need your understanding. We know that you're here. You're with us 24-7. Lord, your spirit is within us. And so we don't have to ask you to come. We thank you that you are here. And Lord, we live out of the truth that's real. And so, Lord, we just ask you to guide us and teach us that we would have hearts and minds that are open to you. We ask this for your sake and for your glory, for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Over the next two weeks starting today, I wanted to, um, I guess, tackle a, a topic um, broadly speaking, the, the supremacy of God, the, the, uh, the completeness of Christ. And, and so that's, that's really my, my target as I go forward for the next couple of weeks. The text that I want to use this morning is an Old Testament passage, and it's one that we probably might be quite familiar with, but of course it is the, um, the Tower of Babel story in Genesis chapter 11. And I want to read that to you and, and just... Uh, talk that through and, and talk through what's going on there. Uh, what's the offence that this tower has been that the people have constructed before God? And then to come to the attitude of the people and find out, well, what was going on in their hearts? Why was this offensive to God? And draw some connection for us today that we would turn some truth into life, into our life today, this morning. So Genesis chapter 11 
we read, it's only a short nine verse text, um, big point in history, but it's a short summary of the events that took place. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used bricks for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all, uh, sorry, and they all have the same language. And that is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. It's... um. It's a passage that we've probably heard if we've been through Sunday school and, and, uh, and reading the scriptures from an early age, the, the Tower of Babel. Um, it's an interesting term, isn't it? The, to build a Tower of Babel, it, it, it actually is part of um, English and Aussie vernacular, isn't it? To, to construct, like we would use it in everyday language almost, to build a Tower of Babel is to build a, a monstrous uh, premises. And, uh, and it's quite a common, it's often used in a negative term, negative tone. But here we have this story, the Tower of Babel, and, and where it sits in the history of mankind is quite fascinating, isn't it? Because we've started off by looking at the creation that God had established. He spoke the word and creation came to be. And of course, mankind was the pinnacle of his creation and said, it is very good. It is very good what I've created. He breathes life into man and there is that beautiful union, that connection between God and mankind, his pinnacle of creation. And it all just goes pear-shaped from that forward on, doesn't it? From that point on, we see the, te- the, the story, the, the, the witness of mankind and their failures. But we also witness the grace of God and his restoring, rescuing, chastening love that he does for a fallen mankind. And we've just come out, if we're reading through Genesis, we've just come out of Genesis uh, chapter 10 and we've, we've looked at you know, the, the Noah, the, uh, the, the floods come and gone and then all of a sudden there's this re-establishment of mankind. And then we have a sense of hope and then we get to the Tower of Babel where it's just, it's this abuse towards God. But Genesis, what, a, what an amazing start or book of the Bible, isn't it? Where we see that creative power of God, which is his eternal nature, the destructive presence of sin. And the human heart so prone to wander and stray from him. But then we see the faithfulness of God to his promises. I love the fact that when we read Genesis, we see that the world and everything in it, the universe, God takes ownership of it. He says, I've created it, it's mine, and I'm going to do something about it. And we see that beautiful picture as he does that over time. 
So when we just hone in now on Genesis chapter 11, we see that this tower, this, this monstrosity of a building uh, that's been constructed, it's an offence to God. And when we think about the common interpretation to this, I want to sort of consider that to start with as we maybe lay a foundation to get to, I want a bit deeper understanding rather than just a, a quick cursory interpretation of this text. The most common interpretation of this text would be one that the, the people were prideful and they were disobedient to God. But I, I, when I read into that and I, I try and grapple with that interpretation, I think there's some ambiguity that surrounds that. For example, the pride debate comes when we read this text where the people say, come, let us make a name for ourselves. When we think about that, there is a sense that this is a natural and normal human desire. And it's not always sinful to leave one's mark on the world that we live, the history that we leave behind us. We want our lives to count for something, don't we? We want our lives to have a legacy of good behind us. We might not always go out and say, my purpose in life is to make a name for ourselves, but inadvertently that can happen. You know, I think of those that abolished slavery. Their names are etched in history. Their name has been made a name for themselves, not because they did it, but because it stands just embedded in history for us to go, look at these men, these Martin Luther King Jr.'s. These John Wesleys, they've made a name for themselves. That's in our recent history, but in 2 Samuel 8.13, it talks of David making a name for himself and there seems no repercussion that flows out of that. It says, let us, let us, let us, that repetition of the people saying, let us go and do this, let us go and do it. Again, I think ambiguity there, because really what are the alternatives for history to be written down with these statements if they were genuinely pursuing the construction of this tower. I just think they're simply using common speech to communicate what they're planning to do. So that's a little bit of the pride side of things. Naturally, there's always pride in human life. We don't want to disregard that. But think about the disobedience. God's command was to fill the earth. We see that in the first few chapters of, or the first chapter of Genesis and chapter 9. But that's not what the people are afraid of doing they're afraid of being scattered that's what 11.4 says that's their fear is is not about filling the earth but about being scattered so is this disobedience to the command that God's given to the people to fill the earth because when we look at the text they're doing quite well aren't they in filling the earth they're just in one locale and you think well why are they so fearful of perhaps being scattered and again, this is a normal, natural human desire to be near family, isn't it? To be near close friends, to be near connection, to be in community. That is natural. I'm not sure it's always a bad thing. It's a hard thing when families are torn apart. It's a, it's a, it, it rips to the, the heart of who we are as people. Uprooted, to be re-established in unfamiliar areas. So... Where's this pressure coming from to be scattered? And I'm not sure it's from God. I think it's more likely from within. I think from within of the people group, there is this fear of we don't want to be scattered because our sense of community, our sense of uh, well-being, our, our sense of being able to 
be together and share resources and and be constructive as a community all comes in that because as we know a growing population puts pressures on resources on the land that you have the ability to produce food all so when you when you combine and put large groups the pressure is there and so there can be the fear to scatter now i'm from a a rural background in western australia a farming community and we see this very much so in the rural communities whereby the farm may have started off a couple of generations ago where it was what would be now great-grandma, great-grandpa who farmed the land. And then, of course, they have their offspring. And then the, the son comes into the, into the property. And so they're working together as a family cooperative farm now. And then the son has children. So all of a sudden, they're all thinking, how is this one block that now supported just a couple, one family, how's it now going to support three, four, five families? All of a sudden, there's this pressure on that place to produce and to be for that family what they want it to be. So we see that these family farms then buy up land because they need more land to support the growing family for those sons and daughters who might want to take on farming in their family name. So I think that's where the pressure comes, that they don't want to be scattered. They want to stay. It's comfortable. So I'm not sure that this is the offence to God. Um, And of course, that is what eventually happens. God does scatter them, and we'll touch on that in a second. So I'm not so much sure it's about pride or disobedience of people. But why did God act the way he did? And I think it leaves us to the point we need to draw our attention into this this construction, this monstrosity of this, this tower, we need to look at that and say, what is it about that that actually is offensive to God? And when I've done some research on this and when I've, I've looked into the, to, to what that structure is, most historians would say that it resembled a tower called a ziggurat. It was a very... Um, consistent with, uh, with constructions of, of that Mesopotamian area, uh, era, uh, about this time of the text that we read, and, and it's these structures that people have analysed and they've looked at and will say, what is this thing? And it's, and it's quite, a, um, uh, quite a common understanding that, that these structures actually had, uh, they, they tell us a lot about the, uh, the people's attitude towards the deity that they worshipped. And so I want to look at this or say, well, what's the attitude? What's behind the, the, the motivation of the people to construct such a, such a premises, such a building? And I want to say that this, this construction, this Tower of Babel, it, to me it screams out they had a particular concept of their God. And so as I said, this structure, it's, it's called a ziggurat, um, and these towers are, as I say, very consistent with the eastern architecture and the building materials as described in Genesis chapter 11. And it tells us a lot about the concept that the people had towards God. And so what this structure is, it resembles a pyramid structure, um, some as high as 30 feet, around sort of 90 to 100 metres, a pyramid structure, 
they were dedicated to individual deities. It consisted of a stairway that went up the side of this um, pyramid structure. And at the top there was a, as a level there with a room in it. And this room was equipped with a table and a bed set for the, the deity. This was not a temple or a place of worship. It was not for rituals, but it was a sacred space not to be used by the common people. These structures were designed to accommodate their God. Typically, next to the temple was the worship centre, where this particular deity would, uh, or the worship of that deity would be conducted within that place. And so this stairway, it was a very much a visual representation believed to be used by the gods to travel down from one realm to another. So these massive structures were built solely for the convenience of the gods and maintained in order to provide for the deity and the amenities that would refresh them along the way. It's very fascinating to study this stuff, isn't it? Because it's not about mankind trying to get to heaven, it was all about trying to help their God to get out of the heavens down to earth. That's what these ziggurats were all about. Built solely for the convenience of their God. At the top there was a gate for the gods, which was the entrance into that heavenly realm, as they would say, the heavenly abode. And then at the bottom, as I say, there's this temple where they would only hope that the God would descend out of the heavens and transcend down those staircases into the place that they worshipped in order to receive gifts. And of course, the way gods work is that they would bless them, somehow be appeased by these gods. So understanding what this structure is, we come to the point of saying, well, what does this tell us about The folk in Genesis 11, what's their concept of God? And so, the earliest that we can see of the understanding can be reached from this text, this research that we can, we can read and we can discover, is that urbanisation came, with this urbanisation came the idea that the gods were viewed in human terms. Seeing God in human terms, rather than the idea that mankind was trying to be like God, conversely, upside down, they were reducing deity to the level of fallen mankind. So essentially, the ziggurat was constructed for a God who was limited, who needed a rest, who needed a bed to lay down on. He had earthly needs. And in essence, one that can can be appeased, one that can be manipulated. So this is what I believe is that Babel syndrome. Having a distorted view of God that degrades him, limits him, paints him as weak, as one like in human needs, that can be met by a fallen, a broken group of people. That's what I believe is this Babel syndrome that we've got going on. And this is a very significant threshold that which is hard to turn back from, isn't it? I mean, just put it into the historical context. God has just delivered a massive act of discipline on mankind by flooding the earth. His grace, he has rescued a family. 
and he paints that rainbow and he says, never will I destroy the people again like I have just done. And that's his promise and he is faithful, he will keep his promises. And so now he's presented with this diabolical situation whereby how on earth can a people turn back from this? As Yahweh says in 11.6, what will be the end of such an attitude if this is the betrayal that they have of him? Where do we go from here? What is possible? And so with a corrupt view of the Almighty God, we read in Genesis, we read the Noah account, and now the events of Babel, that slippery slide, don't we? The corruption that can only be the result. And we only have to be people of our day to look around us and understand when you take God out of ideology, take him out of community, out of society, look at what we get. Just open the newspaper and that's what we get. That's what we get. So we hear in this text, the Lord confuses their language and in turn causes separation of the people. Cooperative living now becomes difficult and I believe that what God has done here by separating the people is an act of grace. It's an act of grace to say, you are in a really bad spot with this view of who I am and I'm not going to flood the world again but I'm going to give you a restart if you like. I'll separate you. It's going to be hard. It's going to be tough but we've got to understand that God is sovereign and he's all-knowing and he, he knows what is best and he will always do what is right and so it is that point that he says, I will separate you because that is the act of grace from our Heavenly Father for their survival. He confuses their language. And then don't we, we, we get to Genesis 12, don't we? And we just see that beautiful story of God dealing with Abraham. I will make a covenant with you, Abraham. I will make your name great. I'll give you as many descendants as sand on the seashores. I'll give you a land to call your own. Why? Not because he just thought Abraham was a good bloke, but because by being a blessing to Abraham, that he would be able to be that, that, uh, that starlight, that beacon to the rest of the people to say, here is Yahweh, here is God. And here is the one that has made covenant with people. He is faithful. He is the God of creation. So he, he puts all of this onto Abraham and says, this is what I'm going to do. This is the covenant I make with you, Abraham so that the world would see and be drawn to him. So let's, let's bring that into the now. Let's bring that to now. What is our response in addressing this Babel syndrome in us? Rather than having that same view that the, the people of the passage had, rather than God having earthly needs, rather than God being weak, I do. I'm weak. I have needs. I've been created by God for my needs to be met by Him. It is God that's put into me love, acceptance, assurance, significance, security, total commitment from another. God has buried them in my heart and He said, this is what it means to be made in my image. I've put all this here for you. And it's only right that those things are met 
in God. And it's only fitting, it's only fully satisfied when we go to God for love, acceptance, assurance, significance, security, total commitment from Him. It's only in Him that we get those things completely and fully. So I'm the one with needs, I'm the one that's broken, not God. And so when I understand my concept of God, I've got to have some self-revelation here of how do I see God? We've sort of pulled apart a little bit about how the folk of Genesis 11 see God. Well, how do I see God? Who's God to me? And I need to answer that question when I'm at my lowest. I need to answer that question when I'm at my worst. Who is God when I'm at my worst? Because that's the God that I'll generally default to rather than the God of my thinking. When the world's rosy, when the world's peachy, oh, someone asks me who God is, I can go to the, and, and just recite and, and, and go with who I think God is. But isn't it true when we're down and out, we're in that pit and we're just life is turned upside down, where is the God of my thinking? And we have all these questions, don't we? Where is he? Why are you letting me down, God? And we, we, we go, we've got to answer that question of who is God. My God concept comes when I answer that when I'm at my worst because it's there that it's revealed. So in other words, is my theological God different to my day-to-day -day God when I'm rubber hitting the road? Am I controlled by what I think about God, what I know about God to be true, or how I feel about God? Which God do I trust to meet my needs? The God of my mind or the God of my emotions? And often we react out of emotions, don't we? Emotions aren't real, they, they're responders. But often we're reacting out of our emotions because that's what we feel, that's the heat of the moment, that's the heat of the battle, that we go to those emotive concepts as our default. So, let's look at this. If I limit God to my emotions, then at my worst I might feel that he is not there, he doesn't help, he won't listen, he has impossible commands, he judges me, he's out to get me, he's not good enough, he expects performance and makes me pay. These are real responses from surveyed people and it might be a response that you have when you feel at your worst, who is God? Therefore, I have a limited God. If I see God really as, who, as this who he is, when there's a conflict of unbelief within me and this has a profound effect on my relating with God. This is a God I want to run from, not run to. If he's not there, why would I go to him? If I feel like he doesn't help or he won't listen or he has impossible commands, he's this, this unbearable taskmaster, why would I go to him? And I think we have to be real with this, real with this text. can just lead me to avoiding God and that's not what God wants. It's not what's best for me. It just leaves me in a stale place. And I just really encourage you as, as, a, as a community of people that there may be some people that within you that feel this, that God is distant, God is not there, God is too hard for me. And I just really want to encourage you to be the community to each other where you can voice that to each other and walk with each other in that and be a place where people can just share 
I'm really struggling with this right now. This is the community of the church. This is what God has brought together. And I really pray that that would be the case for you as a, as a group of people to have the grace enough and to be bold enough to say, I'm struggling with God right now. And to be able to sit and walk with someone. We go to the Bible, don't we? We go to the text and we find out, well, let's, let's get a right definition. Let's get a right concept of God. And the God of 1 Corinthians 13, who just gives us that passage about love. We talk about that passage and we can think, well, who is this God of love? And so we can do some replacement of words here, can't we? The God of this passage is the truth that, truth that we must feed upon. God is patient. God is kind. God is not jealous. He's not boastful. He's not proud. He's not rude. He's not demanding of his ways. He's not irritable. He keeps no record when wrong. He's never glad about injustice. He rejoices when truth wins. He never gives up. He never loses faith. God is always hopeful and God always endures through every circumstance. This is the God when we read 1 Corinthians 13 about love. This is who he is. And this is the God concept that we need to have in our thinking and also be driven in our emotions so that when I am at my worst... I can go to God and I say, God, you are there. God, you are there to help me. You are there to listen to me. You are that heavenly Father that says, come in, sit on my lap and talk to me. He's a God that doesn't give impossible commands. He gives us the completeness of Christ to be complete in Christ and all of this true of him is true of me and I can stand before him and not have to think, I have to go through all these rituals, all these motions, all this system all this stuff to be right before God that's the God that we have and that's what we have to have the God of our thinking our theology is is the same as our God of our day-to-day when we're going through the ups and the downs of life and this is the point for us today and I'll start to wind up here for us all but to believe the truth about God what he says about himself, what he reveals about himself through the scriptures and ultimately we see through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is given to us to show us who God is. So if you want to know what God looks like, we go to Christ and we see the beautiful picture of God in Christ Jesus and not to be controlled by a wrong concept of God. The folk of Babel, they were controlled by an error, a big flaw in their concept of God. And so through faith, we receive the things of God. We're not generating the things of God in faith, but in faith, we're receiving what God has. And God's school of faith is taught in the arena of life, not in a textbook but in life and that's why when we go through the ups and the downs when we're in that pit we're just going why am I here have I done something wrong did I miss a turn did I offend you God why am I here instead of that thinking there we believe the truth about God and he says he says I'm here with you I'm working you might not see it 
but I'm working. And maybe in a year, maybe in two years, maybe in five years, maybe in 20 years, maybe in 50 years, you might see what God was doing. And that's why faith is not about me standing here and telling you how good my faith is and showing you all that I can do. But faith is that beautiful picture of, of how long you can wait and receive nothing because you're looking to Christ and you're being fulfilled and satisfied in your relationship and walk with him. We don't serve a weak God, we don't serve a limited God in human likeness, but we serve a one true sovereign God who is working in, in eternity, in time, but in eternity, to his purpose and plan. And I just love, we'll talk about it next week, but just what Christ has done for us and for us to be seated in Christ and Christ to be seated in me. 24-7, he's with us. We don't have to ask God to come down, come down and be at my beck and call, but he's walking with us. Romans 8, 28 where we read what Paul writes, that God is working all things together for good. And as we are in that arena of life, where we have struggle, we have pain, we have enjoyment, we have good times, God is working out all things for good. And it's often in those moments of hardship, pain, distress, torment, in that pit at the end of the road, that God is often revealing things about me so that he can reveal things about himself so that he would be my need. Ultimately, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ in my life and that's what God's working towards through everything. All things are working together for good. He's, he's letting everything work for him so that if we would, we would come to him and seek God and say, would you reveal the living Jesus Christ to me in this moment? And next Sunday, as I say, we're going to look at the supremacy of Christ as we tackle going further with this in discovering having a, having a, a big view of God who does not need anything that me as a human needs he's not weak he's not limited but let's cast our vision to our great one true sovereign god who is working from eternity to eternity and we'll tackle that again next week i want to say thank you for the opportunity to share and a chance to encourage you this morning as you walk with your god let me pray heavenly father we do believe the words of the scriptures lord that you are good, you are just, you are welcoming. Lord, you are almighty, you are all present. You are sovereign, you are powerful. Lord, the list just goes on and on and on about who you are and, and the, the truth of you. Lord, you know our, our feeble minds and hearts and 
the, the brokenness that we walk through in this world and the temptation to believe something that's different of you. Lord, by your spirit, would you speak to us and, and lead us in the moment by moment, in the daily, in the ups and the downs, Lord, revealing the things about us that are flawed, where you step in and say, here I am. Lord, will we make that available to you, for you to do your good work in our life? Thank you for who you are and thank you for your presence with us now and as we go. And together as a community, together as a community, I pray that we would, as your body, as your church, be people that would spur each other on, be there for each other as we struggle, as we wrestle with these things. But we know that you're working all things for good and for that we give you thanks and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.